Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome back to Boss Uncaged Podcast. So today's episode is definitely a treat. Um, those that know, know I like to give whoever I'm interviewing with a particular nickname. And I could give this individual so many different nicknames. It's like her history of what she's done for like STEM and just technology, math, everything collectively. I could have named her a multiple different things. But staying true to the brand, I'm going to name her the Profound Boss because she's done a lot of profound things. So the floor is yours, Sherry. I want you to kind of tell our audience a little bit about you and what would you actually like to talk about today? But thank you first for the opportunity to be here and speaking with your audience. Um, my name is Sherry Shannon Vanstone. I am the president and CEO, founder of Profound Impact. My journey started many years ago in, in Ohio with my father, who was an operating engineer, and he wanted to become an electrical engineer. Well, that in those days, there weren't any online courses, so he took some, uh, it was called uh, the Correspondence School. And uh, he took classes where they sent the course work and he did it and then we had to mail it back and it got graded and was sent back. Then the next module was sent to you. So when I was about in second grade, I started working through the modules with my father. And um, then, you know, a lot of math, a lot of, you know, a lot of different, uh, you know, concepts, mostly math in those early days. And uh, so by the time I was a fifth grade, I scored 10th grade in mathematics in the standardized testing. Uh, so that gave the validation to my my interest and love for it, but also that I I had the knack for it. I had, well, well I wouldn't say that I was talented, but I, I was encouraged to do it. So I did it. And my teachers in high school and junior high, all women, uh, teachers too, which was uh, quite unusual in those days, uh, all encouraged me to continue in mathematics. And so I had the privilege of of getting a math degree and I went to University of Tennessee. I got a master's degree in mathematics and ended up working for the US government as a cryptologic mathematician. So that's making codes, encryption, confidential, uh, messages and breaking them. And so I spent six years there before I became interested in the uh, startups and entrepreneurs. Interesting, right? It's definitely interesting. I mean, you're saying that, you know, you were code breaker. So I mean, people, they've seen movies about people that are figuring out code. And you know, like the beautiful mind, it kind of comes to mind, like you're a living, breathing representation of that environment. But you kind of put a little twist on it and you kind of dived into like machine learning. So I want you to kind of talk about like obviously having a math and science background. How has that portrayed to where you are right now more in the machine learning space? Well, the interesting thing about mathematics is that foundation for so many things. And uh, AI and machine learning has been around for many, many years. I was at uh, uh, MasterCard, a VP of of electronic commerce there and the credit card companies has been using neural networks for years to understand our, our spending behaviors. And so to, the good thing about today and, and, and where we're at with AI and machine learning is 
there's copy, there's an extensive amount of computational power today and the algorithms are better than they were 20 years ago. So right now it's just kind of a perfect storm of everything coming together with AI. I can tell you I'm not an expert in AI. I, I find it intriguing. I'm learning uh, more and more about it every day. We use the AI for good, for efficiencies, for doing things uh, more effectively and efficiently than a human being can do it. So my company, Profound Impact, we take all the funding opportunities around the world. There's over $300 billion in research funding available globally every year. And we match it using these algorithms uh, with uh, industry partners. There's hundreds of thousands of them and over 8.8 .8 million researchers that are looking for this funding to conduct fundamental and breakthrough research. So algorithms that we utilize and the machine learning itself, because the algorithm continues to learn on what's the most effective match. Now, what I'm meaning by that is there's over, it's estimated there's over a third of that research funding that is not effectively used. In fact, I heard the word squandered. Mm. So what if we could get the most for those research dollars. How much further along would we be in helping solving some of, of the world's greatest problems? We could get the most out of every research dollar. So that's how we're using AI and machine learning. We use it in many ways, but in one is bringing in the contacts from the uh, grant opportunities, being able to take that in to uh, bring you know the parts that we need, of course, all of it, but getting the contextual meaning of the of what the grant is about and then specific things that you do need. And then we take the researchers expertise, the industry partners expertise and using that uh, uh, keywords and other technology, we can do this matching. And then the algorithm continues to learn what is a good match, what is a better match. And then we weight those matches uh, with our clients and say, this one's 80% or this one's 90% or this one's 50%. And it's not really a chance of success, but it's more of how, how, how good of a match is it? Like, this is really in my wheelhouse as a researcher. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to really be able to do something great with this, these research dollars. So that's how we use AI and in, in, in my company now. But, uh, I must say, I'm learning new something new every day with AI and machine learning. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously with that, you guys have kind of created some some products to help in that. So you have a company, but underneath the company, you have a career impact, you have connection impact and research impact. So I want you to kind of talk about these three, like how do they work independently and how do they all work together collectively? So connection impact was the vision that I, that I had when I started Profound Impact. I've been in information security all my career, and I sold my last company in 2017, uh, and it was uh, security for the driverless and a, a autonomous vehicle. Mm -hmm. So I had a non-compete, uh, and so I decided I wanted to look at doing something different, and I did. This is totally different, what I'm doing. And what it was is about measuring an individual's impact, global impact, and how do you me and then how do you collect take all of that and collectively measure uh well the collective impact of, of an organization of taking those individuals and uh so it started with a lot of data so it's about data being you know using data analytics trying to get to the data first you have to understand what you want to measure mm -hmm. how, how do you define impact 
an organization like the University of Waterloo Math Faculty, who was our first client, we wanted to say, okay, it was how many startups and how many patents, you know, you know economic uh, impact. Uh, they also looked at volunteerism. They looked at other impact too. And then of course we looked at the academic side of it too on, uh, on the impact of research. So it, it started out saying, okay, now how we take, take all this data, we kind of ingest it all and then try to break it down into something meaningful for the client to say, okay, we can measure our impact by basing it on these few uh, metrics. Then we said, what, what, what if we could visualize that impact? So connection impact is about that. It's, take, it's a platform that you bring in information about your stakeholders, whether they're researchers, alumni, industry partners, and you look at um, all of the data and then you and then try to visualize that impact to yeah. encourage future collaboration. So everything is about connecting great people to do great things. And that's our why at Profound Impact. And so Connection Impact does that. It's 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 a it's a wonderful platform and we still have customers on it. However, as for a business model, it just doesn't scale. Mm. And yeah, in the in the in the business world, you need to find that billion dollar market and you be be able to address that market in, in a very uh, sustainable way. So that was our uh so that's uh, uh that's called connection impact. Mm. The second product, career impact, was came out of that working with several of the universities. They wanted to not just look at their overall impact, they wanted to get to the granularity of an impact of a specific program. Mm. Let's say it's your co-op program, or maybe it's your master's in entrepreneurism. Uh, you want to see it, could we can we measure our impact of this program? And one of the first customers again was University of Waterloo Co-op. University of Waterloo and I'm Waterloo, Ontario is one of the leading organizations in co-op programs mm -hmm. in the world. And they attract everyone to come to, to the university because of the, the extensive program they have. But they've never had a feedback loop. Hmm. So we said, oh, how did how, I know I know they have superstars they point to and they mm -hmm. figure out who they are, but they did they had never really looked at the impact of their program and fed back that information to improve their program. So we did, we did again, it's lots of data, bringing in data and, the, and do it and anal analyzing it and then getting to the granularity of how female identifying alumni have done against male identifying. And get to that and say, you know, we noticed that in the fourth year of their career, this happens. You know, so we could get to that granularity and then feed that back into uh, the program for actionable insights into it and act and for 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 action. So let's let's try to improve our program. And in doing this product, which again I love the career impact product. I I it fits again with you know our whole why. However, again, it, the scalability wasn't there as far as a business sustainability. We still have our customers there and we still support that product. But we got excited about research impact because we were in at, at a university in, um, in Waterloo, Wilfrid Laurier University, and talking with the Office of Research, the Vice President of Research there. And he said, I, I love these products, but this is my problem right now. Mm -hmm. 
We need more research money. We need uh, its onerous process. Uh, there's very few tools out there. Why don't you do a survey for us uh, and find out what other, if this is my, our, just our problem or other universities having this issue too. So that's how it started. But again, it builds, so the research impact product, which I described with the machine learning and, and the AI and bringing in all this data, the foundation is still the connection impact product because that dealing with a lot of data and learning how to bring unstructured data in and normalize that data so that you can query it in an effective way. So that let's build on that and the same with the career impact. So we didn't throw away all of the baby with the bathwater with those products. We build on those products for the research impact. I mean, it, it sounds phenomenal. I mean, obviously, with every hurdle that you you like face, you kind of created a new solution for for and essentially you created a new product to fix those fix those problems. So, I mean, with that, I, I want to kind of time travel back. I mean, earlier on, you were talking about like when you were in fifth grade, you, you took a standardized test and you scored like you know a ten grade level. So, I want to kind of talk about your, your upbringing. Like, obviously, you're saying that your your dad was influential with that, but was any of your ancestors or parents entrepreneurs because you're really into entrepreneurism as well especially for females uh no i i none of my family that i know of uh had had that gene except i guess my father they my father my, my parents were are from the appalachian mountains mm. uh north of knoxville tennessee they grew uh they grew up there and that's where i was born and they came they went to ohio they went north to find jobs and get out of the coal mines and do this work so they they took risk so maybe the risk taking side of it because that that's always the case with being an entrepreneur is, is how much risk can you take my father wasn't as a, a huge risk taker but he was an, a big enough risk taker that he left his his family and and moved moved further north uh so that encouraged me my parents did not discourage me on anything they but they did not purposely try to direct me in any way they did not have an education my father had a sixth grade education my mother eighth grade and then went on and get and did get her high school equivalency and later in her life well and i was the first one in my family to go to university so, so yeah so that but they gave me the they gave me the environment to allow me to do anything i wanted to do do you think that was particularly difficult for your parents considering that you know in today's society today's world you're looked at as, as a genius right in comparison to like the average person was that kind of difficult for them to to raise you i i wouldn't say i was the easiest person to raise i'm the middle child and I have brother and sister older, brother and sister younger, and everything they see about middle ch children, I, I exhibited that. Uh, but they were very careful not to compare us to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, I did excel uh, academically, uh, always high school on, on and uh, but my parents never compared us. Uh, that was a good thing, right? There wasn't like, oh, look at Sherry, what she's done. So, uh, but they, but they did just let me go and do what. And when I said I want to go to university, they said, we'll have to figure out how, how to do that. And, they, mm -hmm. and we did. And with scholarships and things, I was able to go. And then they, and then uh, my, uh, my other sisters went. Uh, my sister who was older mm -hmm. was a hairdresser. She went back after I finished university. She went back and she has a doctorate now in education. And my younger sister, the same thing. 
So uh, the, the girls did and the boys stayed and finished high school and have a very good career. But uh, my parents were very good. They were very uh, even killed about it. They didn't want to set too high of expectations for any of us. Certainly they set some expectations. There were certain things that we had to do. We had to finish high school. We had to do certain things, but they weren't pressuring me. And, and my, my journey, even after, uh, after high school, I went into mathematics, but then I kind of decided I wanted to go to Costa Rica and live for a year and learn Spanish. And, and so my parents just didn't say anything. They just said, okay. Then I got back and said, oh, what am I going to do? Oh, I better finish that math degree. So uh, they didn't give me any kind of time frame like, or anything uh, because, of course, I don't think they knew. They didn't have the experience and they weren't going to impose on me uh, their lack of experience. So let's just time travel forward a little bit, right? So obviously, like your 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 parental units per se were definitely forthcoming in, in letting you be who you were going to be. But as a woman and as intellectual as you are, I would think it was pretty much difficult to find either uh, a counterpart or a partner as equal. But for you, you did that. So I want want you to kind of talk about your your late husband Scott and like both of you guys being equally yoked, into like both like equally intellectual. How did that like work and how did you guys even find each other? Because usually opposites attract, but it seems like you guys were more so both on the same spectrum. Well, uh, I met I met uh, Scott Vanstone in 1998 in Davos, Switzerland at a cryptologic mathematicians meeting. And I was at, at that time with the U.S. government. He was at the University of Waterloo and had spun out a company. And uh, so we, 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 we met. We started uh, talking and work over the years, and then we worked for a couple of years. We did a couple of papers together. Mm. I don't have his, I do not have his mathematical genius. He really is, it was a mathematical genius. But then we, uh, I was, I, I went to Silicon Valley after that in 88 to work with a startup. And so I went from being a, a technical, quasi, I uh, was quasi business side of things to, um, Silicon Valley to a information security startup. And I did that because I really wanted, to, I, I loved my job at the US government. I had the best job ever, but I was told that to move up, I had to move on from that mm. particular job. So I decided to move out and go from the, the DC area all the way to Silicon Valley. So I was with the Silicon Valley company and it was, uh, I had a great opportunity at that time to learn more about the business side of things. And I was ahead of Asia Pacific for six years. But during that time, I kept in contact with Scott Manstone and his company and his, his co-founders, who one was also a mathematician, one was an electrical engineer. And so in 1993 or uh, four, I decided I wanted to leave the Silicon Valley for several reasons. One, because I wasn't able to change the culture at the Silicon Valley company in the way I wanted it to be changed, uh, meaning it was very toxic. I was fine because I was strong enough woman and, and really had a very solid foundation uh, with my background as a mathematician and in information security, but I could see that it was not good for the people that worked for me and the people that worked with me. So I decided I wanted to leave. And, and so I, I was talking to, uh, not to Scott, but to their CEO, 
And Scott was not the CEO. He was the chief scientist but and the founder, but never the CEO. And they said, well, why don't, why don't you come and interview with us since you're looking to leave? And they were a competitor to the company I was with in Silicon Valley. So I came to Canada and I interviewed both with, both, both with the, several companies, yeah. uh, some in Ottawa, some in the Mississauga area near Toronto. Anyway, uh, I respected Scott, of course, I've, otherwise I wouldn't have even thought about working for him. Uh, but, and I respected him because I knew he was really, he was a leader and he, and he was different. He was a different, uh, researcher because he also had business acumen. Mm. He, he had the business side and could see that. So once I moved to Canada, did take the job, of course, and then come to Canada, uh, uh, he and I became involved. And, uh, it, it was a little difficult. <laughs> uh, after about three years, I, I did leave because, uh, I, it was a sense of nepotism. He was on the board. He was the founder. I was a VP of, of sales and marketing. And, uh, but the good thing is that we, we got, we did continue to work together and we were able to work together in many ways, not in the ways that I wasn't able to, to proofread his, his mathematical equations, but we, I, it was about the business and how we're going to take this concept he had. It was a mathematical concept that was competitor to existing, uh, security protocols. And it's all based on a very sophisticated mathematics. And I was able to, uh, get it into standardized, uh, standard bodies, mm -hmm. uh, ISO and ANSI and other IEEE and IETF and all of these. And I was the one who was, 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 was on the commercialization side as far as standardization goes. But he was the one who could sit down to a banker and explain it. And they thought, Oh, I can understand this mathematics. So we, we were really a, a good combination. And so of course I left. The company went to MasterCard for several years and then, uh, his company was sold. Certicom, I was a part of, was sold to Blackberry back, Blackberry acquired us 2009. We did all the security for Blackberry, Motorola, all of the people in, mm -hmm. in, uh, uh, smartphones, handsets at those days that became the smartphones after that. And, uh, so then after 2000 and I came back and worked a little bit for the company, mostly in the patent side of things. Uh, and then in 2011, I left and in 2012, he did. And then we started our own company together. So that was when we really could, uh, work together, not only about, uh, who we brought in, the culture, what we're doing, but did we still got to do some really good mathematics? I think it is a phenomenal story because I mean, like, Ideally for entrepreneurs, that's probably one of the hardest things to either find an equal or find a counterpart or find a business partner that can understand and comprehend what you're doing. So I definitely like it. It's great to hear that you found someone as equally yoked as you in this journey. And part of being a mathematician, right? I mean, things are definitely concrete, right? Either the equation is right or, or the equation is wrong. I want to kind of talk about like your branding for a second. I knew that behind the branding, I'm a brand specialist. Everything that, that you, you've created and developed had to be for a particular reason. So I want to talk about like the, the logo itself. Is it a, a fractal generation? Like what, what kind of mathematical like meaning is behind your iconography and your logo? I can't, I don't know. I'll tell you that. I just said, bring me something interesting. <laughs> yeah. And that shows some kind of, uh, that there's 
a, a building, you know, there's kind of a kind of explosion out or, or, or the details and the granularity of it. So you get both. You get the expensiveness of it. And then you also say, oh, there's granular parts. There's, there's this, this part here, but then it makes up a whole. Mm -hmm. So again, it goes back to uh, connecting great people to do great things, the connection part, but also the visualization of, of impact both collectively and individually. Yeah, I mean, so no, no, so no mathematical equation pointed. So. Okay. okay. Well, I mean, obviously, you you substitute and you use it in in the um, research spotlight, like the iconography of that. So I want you to kind of talk about, like, obviously, the research impact is your scalable platform. So I want you to talk about the research spotlight, like, what has that been doing for you, and and what is the research spotlight for the listener that's first time hearing about it? Well, the research spotlight is about getting. You, people know there's research being done every day. We, mm -hmm. we see the collaboration with the COVID-19 vaccines. We see collaboration uh, that we see more and more worldwide collaboration, national and international collaboration, because we have some of the brightest minds out there. How do we get the most research for the research dollar is that we make sure we have the right group together, the right collaboration. So why is that important? Because we're not going to solve these problems. Yeah. It, we, we, on average, it takes 17 years to get research into practice. We can't wait that long. So we have to do something to accelerate taking research to commercialization, but also getting the right research and then taking it to commercialization. So we have several, we have several battles along this way. but. When, when, you, when you find that with an international collaboration, I mentioned it earlier about standardizations. And standardization process is usually an international process, especially with dealing with information security, where it has to be scrutinized. Every mathematical equation has to be scrutinized and, and try, you know, try to, to find the weakness in the algorithm and the protocol. That takes an international collaboration. That's research, and that's that. Then even to commercialize it, takes standardization and collaboration. So why research? Because I believe we can, we need to do something. Education and research, but I'll just concentrate on research right now. Um, is that we need to we need to get better at it. We need to accelerate our our innovation, and the way we're going to do that is finding using the right tools. We develop technology as technologists and researchers, but we don't always use technology uh, effectively. So what if we get the right tools there that could take, like finding a research grant and finding an industry partner and putting the right researcher together, let technology do that. And so you can concentrate on your specific area of expertise and get the most out of the research buck, because we have to do it. We have to accelerate research and we have to accelerate innovation uh, and to commercialization of that research. I think it's, it's, it's crazy that, you know, you're saying 17 years. I mean, 17 years is vastly approaching two decades. So what, what you're proposing is how much of a percentage or how many years would you be able to potentially shave off of that 17 year differential? I think we can get it down to two or three or four. Yeah, and especially today with, with the tools that we have. You couldn't have said that in, in the 90s. And we, you know, I, I worked at MasterCard during that time. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to get secure uh, purchasing 
-hmm. on the internet, right? Now, the internet was early in those days. We didn't have apps. We're just getting to the, to the smartphone. So a lot of this is about that perfect storm, the, uh, the technology coming together, just like with AI. It's just the perfect time for it with, with the, with all of these factors coming in. So we can accelerate. We can accelerate using utilizing technology to accelerate the research commercialization. So I think we can get it. And you've seen it. You've seen, uh, I, I know we can get an app deployed in that amount of time, of course, to maybe a year, maybe even less than that. But fundamental research, uh, I'm not saying that some of those apps don't have fundamental research, but global uh, impactful fundamental research that addresses some of the big problems that we we're facing today uh, will take a little bit more. And if it's in information security, there's, there's a barrier to entry already because of the time it takes to scrutinize the mathematics, even though you have the greatest brains on it. Uh, then you have to take quantum computing into factor. You know, so so a lot of these things take longer uh, because it's very complex things that you're dealing with. But I think we can accelerate, and we're already seeing it. We're seeing yeah. it just almost an explosion in, in innovation today. So, I mean, off that keyword of acceleration, let's say if you had an opportunity in, in the last 34 years, and I'm doing that because that gives you two generations of that 17. Is there something that you would like to go back to, talk to your younger self, do a little bit of like, influence yourself to change the outcome to make where you are happen a lot faster? So that with that question, when would you go back? And what would you change? Wow, that's that's a great question. Uh, I, as far as just the technology itself, uh, when when I first came to Canada, I mentioned that I was doing standardization and commercialization mm -hmm. of a brand new technology that people most people couldn't even say elliptic curve cryptography, right? Uh, uh, so I think what I would have done earlier is to probably take more risk, mm. more risk in, in uh, the champions. Now we did we did have early champions, mm -hmm. and and just trying to get some more of those. So it would be not necessarily on the technology side, but on more of the the adoption and, and commercialization of it. On the technology side. Uh, it was it was hard at that time. Uh, we we had international collaboration, so mm -hmm. that wasn't the problem. Uh, we could have had some more funding to help with the research and probably have done that. So yeah, maybe that's it. Just uh, finding the right funding sources for some more of the research, not mm -hmm. necessarily what we were doing commercially, but we didn't work just with commercial entities. We worked with universities and researchers, saying, okay, for us to deploy our product and say to you as a user, this is a high level of security and it cannot be broken for 20 years with the best computers. You know, you know, the, you know exhaustive search and uh, uh, attacks and things like that on the, on, the, on the protocols. It would have been better, I think, if we'd have said, okay, let's get more of the outside researchers involved in it. Mm. So that's what I would have done. And then if we had a tool like Research Impact, it would have been easy to do. I could have matched all of them up and said, oh, here's here's this funding opportunity with you as a researcher and us as an industry partner. And wow, we could have accelerated this. But we have that today. And and with our tool, we can even make it easier for people to accelerate their, 
their uh, their research and then also commercialization because we uh, we get we can if 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 you want to get an industry partner involved so that helps get it to commercialization faster I think one of the first things that you said when you was answering that question, which which is kind of ironic, right? Because I mean, earlier on you was talking about like your parents and the one thing that they had on the entrepreneurial side was they were had the ability to take risks. And you're saying that if you can go back, you wanted to take more risks. So like this, let's, let's convert that into your family today. Like, are you teaching like your family members uh, like about risk management and the reward of taking more risks to get the, the, the higher return of investments? I don't I don't know if I wouldn't say that I'm doing it directly, but I'm doing it by example. Yeah. I, mean, I I I could have retired many times or rewired, I say. You mentioned it about having the entrepreneurial brain. It's they said when it stretches in such a way it can never go back. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened to me. My brain stretched to be an entrepreneur and I couldn't go back even after mm-hmm. I sold my last company. I stayed on for a year. Uh, for the transition. And then when I left, I'm thinking, okay, I have a non-compete, and, uh, but I didn't let it go. You know, I, that was March and by July, I already had another company. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wouldn't say that I, I sit down with my stepchildren and talk, tell them, uh, you should take more risk in your life or my, you know, my step uh, or their, my grandchildren. Uh, I think they just see that this is what I do and I'm enjoying it and that uh, I'm making an impact. Not only, um, not only locally, not only with my company, with the people I hire and giving them an opportunity to work on some really exciting technologies, but also, you know, giving them, have, they have a job and a job they really like. Uh, it, it, that's an impact, but then having more of a global impact. Uh, they see what I've done with STEM, my work with the Perimeter Institute. I mean, I, w- I even received an honorary doctorate from Western University in London, Ontario, for my work with with women and and girls in STEM. I mean, wow, I was even surprised about that one. So they see that and they see that I'm putting myself out there. I just gave a pitch last week at Collision. We made the top 10 and I had a pitch and I was nervous. So they could see me doing these kind of things and putting myself out there when they know I don't need to do it Mm -hmm. because I really want to do it. So, I mean, with that, I mean, about things that you really want to do, I mean, I, I want to talk about like the education side of things. I mean, obviously you've had a a legacy of math and science and tech and development. And, you know, I, I want to know, like, if you ever thought about potentially writing a book about your journey or writing the book to help other entrepreneurs to find the level of success that where you are currently? I thought about writing a book at one time especially when I sold my last company. Mm. I even joked, I said, I'd write a book, but I, I, I'm not going to do it this again. So it's not that important to me. And it turns out I'm doing it again. Um, I, I think that would be a, a good project. It's not something that I, I'm not necessarily a great writer. Mm. I, I can write, uh, but I would certainly probably have to use a ghostwriter. Uh, to help me with it, or maybe not a ghostwriter, somebody who would jointly do it with me. But that I think that there's things that we all learn from each other. And, and when I talked about taking risk, it probably was not necessarily financial risk mm-hmm. uh, uh, that I'm referring to. It's more about putting yourself out there, mm-hmm. asking. So people ask me all the time, what, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs? And I say, ask. Mm-hmm. Ask for help. 
ask for input, ask for uh, for people that you barely know, <laughs> ask them. And that's what I was saying, even with that, is like saying, how can I get more champions? How can I get this? How can I help accelerate this? Is by putting myself out there more and asking. Because when you ask, there's a chance you're going to get no. And, you know, some of us don't like to hear that word. And it's never easy to hear that word. Uh, I, I do a lot of it, uh, uh, pitching to investors. So I hear a lot of no's or usually not no's, but you're, you know, come back when you're a little bit further along. So it's just putting yourself out there. And I'll, I'll give one example. Um, when I was selling my company, well, when I, I didn't think I was going to sell my company, I was talking to a company. It turns out it's Robert Bosch. They eventually bought us, uh, purchased my company. Uh, I was talking to them just about investment. I was also dealing with a Canadian company, which was a competitor to them. And not once did I ask them for investment. And I sounded, signed an LOI with this with Robert Bosch, and I got a call the next week from the other company saying we want to acquire you. So if I had just asked, things would have been different. I chose. Uh, I I thought I made the right decision with Robert Bosch, uh, and and that's behind me now. But that was when I was saying writing a book. That yeah. would be like okay. Uh, I just when when you're when you're uh, being a choir, ask these questions of yourself. Why are you doing it? And I did. I had I asked myself the questions. I asked, you know, what is this? Is this is is does this sell of this company align with my core values? Yeah. I asked this, and I chose because they're Robert Bosch is owned ninety five percent by a foundation that the profits go to build hospitals and schools around the world. So I, I, I did ask some questions, some of the right questions, but I didn't exhaust it. And that's what I say, ask, ask, ask. And uh, I, I, I see in my life uh, where I did, and I was very successful at it, but I see where I didn't, and it held me back. And I would have I'm okay after all, all of that, right? It's not that there was any horrible thing that happened because I didn't ask the right question. It was just that I think um, the results would have been more sustainable and long-term. I, I think that that's a phenomenal answer and it kind of kind of leads me down the road about, you know, you were talking about, you know, you like if you were to hire a ghostwriter to potentially write your book. And I, I think I remember watching a video and you had mentioned that your sister wanted to write a book about Scott yeah. And I think it'll be a great joint adventure to kind of hear your sister and you working together to write your book. Because again, I think you have such a long legacy, but your sister has been there at least your entire life. You've known each other. So who else better than to kind of help you write that moving forward? And I just mm -hmm. just throwing out there, I was just like, that would be a very <laughs> cool concept to, to, to write that book. So like finishing off with the books, I want you to kind of talk about like your legacy of like books that you can re remember that you would like to recommend to a listener that helped you to become who you are? I still love the Dale Carnegie book on how to, how to win friends and influence people. Why? Because it's fundamental. Nothing's, nothing's earth shattering. I mean, how old is that book? I have no idea, but just the fundamental things, people want to hear their name, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, how, how do you attract more, you know, with honey than with, you know, 
pepper. You know, just, just some basic things that are still fundamental and they're still true today. The truisms are there. Mm-hmm. And I still love that book. I go, but I, oh, I go back to it because I'm thinking, you know, I learned this how many years ago and yet these still apply today. Mm-hmm. A, a book that I read recently, which is absolutely, uh, affected me so much is Limitless by Jim Quick. Mm. And, and in fact, I had my whole company read it. We, we, we did a chapter a week volunteer, uh, if they wanted to do it. And we, looked at these, what he was talking about is, is your mindset. You have to change your mindset and your motivation. And a lot of books have those two things, but what he has is methodologies too. Mm. So that's what I really liked about his book. And uh, then we, we had a chapter, one person read it. Uh, we all read it. And then one person uh, gave an overview every week. And what it helped us is that one of the things in, in the Limitless book is that a teaching is a great way to, to, to really learn something when you know you have to teach it or do a presentation on it. And then, then we, at the end of each, it was only half an hour, we, at the last five minutes is how do we apply this to our company? How do, how do, how does profound impact become limitless? And that means we can do anything we want. We can be the unicorn or we could, we can be successful. And it was great to hear all of our team members to engage in that. So that book is, uh, on the top right now, uh, of my, uh, of my list. Yeah. So I want to go back. I mean, like 15 minutes ago, you were also talking about and you brought up your, your honorary doctorate, right? So I want to kind of talk about like, you uh, again that's why i named you the profound boss because you have so many different levels of achievement i mean you won the 2020 wct award you're nominated currently right now for the women entrepreneur awards and like you know you sold companies you've been part of selling other companies you're working on a new platform right now you're doing all these different things if you had to pick your, your most significant achievement to date which one would it be and why oh wow I, I would say getting the honorary doctorate um, from a university that I'm not even affiliated with. It's one thing if I, let's say University of Waterloo gave me an honorary doctorate. Uh, I've been around them for a long time. We've been working together, hint, hint, University of Waterloo. Uh, but I think getting that, and it was a, it was, it was a great honor in itself, uh, but it was why I, I received it. And it was because of my work with uh, young women and girls uh, in, in, in STEM and, and the work at Perimeter. I don't know if you know Perimeter, it's uh, Institute of Theoretical Physics mm-hmm. uh, in Waterloo. And I worked for 10 years as a, a chair of the Emmy Neuter Council. Emmy Neuter was a contemporary of Albert Einstein. She was a German mathematician, female, never recognized for her work mm-hmm. uh, until later. But uh, Einstein, Einstein knew who she was and, 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 and her work, but not, not until recently uh, in the last few years has, has people even heard her name. So we had this council and the whole, the whole objective of the council was to bring in money to fund initiatives from high junior high all the way up to research chairs. So we're talking about developing curriculum, math and physics curriculum for, uh, for, for junior high school to hopefully uh, stimulate uh, and encourage these young women and men 
to become interested in STEM and especially in mathematics and physics. And then what we did was get that continuum. That's the thing about sustainability, right? Because what happens right now uh, is, let's say I graduate as a female in mathematics, then I go to graduate school, then there's barriers, and then I, I want to work on a PhD, but I want to get married and have a family, or I need to go to work like I did. Uh, but what if I, I we, we have those initiatives that would pay, would, would pay for my education and even give me a stipend so that I could bring my family to study at, at, at Perimeter uh, or University of Waterloo or wherever. So this is what this, this, um, Emmy Neuter Council did and does, uh, that, ter that type of work. So when I started with them, we, we, we just, we were just early days. And so then we started developing curriculum. So now we have a continuum all the way up to research here. So we have programs for junior high, high school, summer school, uh, undergrad, master's degree, PhD, then uh, fellowships. So we can bring people in for six months and everything's paid for. That, you know, we buy off their teaching. They, they work in a, at, at a university in Chile. And so we can do that. And then we can get all the way up to a research chairs, which are the five million, ten million dollar endowed research chairs. So it was this type of, of, uh, work. And, and, and just say it now I passed the baton on. I'm no longer the chair uh, of this, but it was 10 years and, and, and of, of great, uh, satisfaction to now see some of the young women that were getting their PhD or getting their master's degree now getting a research chair mm. uh, and being able to uh, continue their research. So I would say that I, I mean I could say other things like building a company is always great and, and selling my last company and the people working for me and maybe even now what I'm doing now I could say that but as far as being a really complete uh, example i would i would say that mm. getting my honorary doctorate yes so, so it sounds like i mean obviously you really have career impact you have connection impact you have research impact it sounds like you know in in, in the potential future you may have an education impact kind of sound like to me a little bit yes yes i haven't thought about that one but uh, that would be certain um i wish i would i wish i could figure that one out right mm. to uh with the research impact i believe that I mean, we don't, we're only one tool, but we could be an integral part of the process and, and, and accelerate the process. Mm. So if we, if there's a, if there's something we could do in the educational area that, that would help with that. I know with, uh, there's an organization, uh, a Waterloo company, Apply Board, and they, uh, are able to match international students with, mm. uh, uh, educational opportunities in uh, Canada and other in the U.S. and I guess around the world now, uh, and so they, they they you know they have a they have a way to to uh, accelerate um, uh, people who want to to leave their country and and study somewhere else. Uh, but it, would there be a way to uh, maybe match mentors to mentees uh, with students? So. so there's yeah, who knows there. Yeah, there could be. So I think earlier on you also mentioned kind of like you did some insightful statement about talking to women to just ask for help. So I want you to kind of go into words of wisdom and I want you to add on to asking for help and apply that with STEM 
and how that can actually help someone become successful down the road? Uh, I, I think asking questions in general is always good. And we're, our education system has always has not necessarily been uh, a promoter of that. Let's say when you're in grade school, uh, you know, you hold up your hand and you say, "Why? Why are we studying this?" <laughs> it's like yeah. you, you almost get thrown out for that, right? Uh, because we're we're not we're not encouraged to ask questions. And even in Jim Quick's book, he, he talks about that as being the first thing that we should do is uh, we need to be a good listener, but you also need to be able to ask questions. And they could sound like dumb questions. I've asked some dumb questions before, uh, and but they weren't dumb to me because I really didn't know the answer. Mm -hmm. I, I really thought, you know, you know, why are we doing this? Or why are we not doing this? And, and when, when you, um, I think that's it. That's, that's it. And it's, and I, a, a foundational education in the sciences are about asking questions about looking for evidence based, uh, you know, basis to, to make decisions mm -hmm. and problem solving. Right. So, you know, remember that first word problem that you had and, and, you know, algebra and, and the whole thing is about saying, what do you know and what you don't know? And that it gets, you know, so you first have to start with what you know, and then you can go, okay, then we can build on. Now, what is the unknown? And uh, ask that <clears throat> fundamental question. So if we could utilize that whole asking questions, the, uh, um, the problem solving mentality of a STEM education to your everyday life, mm. uh, whether it's making a business decision or, or doing a pros and cons on something, I do it all the time. I'm, I need to make a decision and I'll say, okay, I'll ask, you know, the why's, the why, why, why should I continue this way or why should I change? And, and that's where it's going to get us to, uh, new discoveries is asking questions. Why? With my personal life, with, uh, with, with, I, I can do it in, in with mathematics. Um, it's, it's not difficult for me to ask the why's there. And when you're using technology, it's more pushing it on into my, uh, my everyday interaction. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to ask why. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to say to somebody, you know, I, I really, I appreciate what you've done in your life. Could you give me a half an hour of your time just so I can have a conversation with you? And mm -hmm. most people will do that. They may not give you more than that because they don't have the time, but if you can just say, I, I, I believe I can learn from you. I, 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 I see this. Why did you do this? Why did you make this decision to stay with this company? You know, and the one thing is there's no wrong or right answers to many of these questions. It's just saying, giving myself a choice. For example, I, I, I haven't talked to you about it, but I, I decided I wanted to be an accountant right out of high school. Mm. And I would, and I started accounting at Miami University of Ohio. And the president, I had an interview with her and with him. And he says to me, uh, talks uh, to ask me what I'm studying. He goes, you're in the wrong classes. You need to be a mathematician. Hmm. Uh, and so, but I, if I had a state account, I still would have been successful because mm -hmm. I just know I would have been, but just have, it's just having one person, I'm talking to a person that can change your trajectory. Mm -hmm. And it just that, you know, it's like, okay, I could have stayed. I would have been fine. 
but I decided to go with what his suggestion was. And it led me into this world that I am in now. Well, I, I think obviously if, if that individual is still around, you definitely owe a debt of gratitude and thanks for sure for that educator. So like with that, like if someone is listening right now, besides sending them to profoundimpact.com, what other like social media platforms would you like them to get in contact with you at? They can contact me on LinkedIn I, uh, under the name Sherry Shannon Vanstone, or they can send me an email at shannon at profoundimpact.com. I'll be glad to uh, communicate with whomever. So, I, and I want the listeners to take you up on that. It's not every day that you have an opportunity to talk to someone on this caliber or this level. And just putting your email out there is definitely a phenomenal thing. So, if you're listening right now, and if anything that the profound boss has said that has intrigued you, definitely reach out and contact her. So, going into a part of my closing, I like to like give this question. And for you, I think it's going to be a phenomenal answer. And I'm anticipating whatever the answer is going to be. If you could spend 24 hours with anyone, that person could be someone from your past, dead or alive, but you have an opportunity to spend uninterrupted 24 hours with that individual. It could be somebody you know, somebody you don't know. Who would it be and why? Oh, wow. That is an outstanding question. Uh, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And why? I mean, it's obvious, but why? Why, why would you want it? Yeah. Um, um, I think he asked the right, he, he, he was one who could ask a lot of hard questions. So spending time with them would help me on that. Uh, but just, you know, just, just the respect, how you treat people. Mm. You know, I think that's a core to everything. Uh, mm. uh, so I think it's having those core values and knowing those and being true to yourself with those mm-hmm. um, will get you. You may you may get you may not get as far as you would otherwise, but I I, I think once you get there, you're really uh, enjoying where you're at. Mm-hmm. So that's why I would like to do that. I think I think it's, it's a phenomenal answer because when you think about science and math you don't think about the, the logistics of religion or being associated to Jesus. So it was just kind of like for you to say that answer, it was just kind of like, I never would have expected you to say that. So it was definitely a phenomenal answer. <laughs> um, so uh, going into closing, man, I like to give whoever I'm interviewing an opportunity to become the host of the Boston Cage podcast. So now my show is your show. You're now the host and I'm your guest. Do you have any questions that you'd like to ask me? What's your why? My why is to leave a legacy of content that will help influence everyone's kids, grandkids, and even new entrepreneurs coming into the space to kind of guide them in the right direction. That's why I do what I do every day. And how often do you go back to your why? Uh, On a regular basis. I mean, at least a couple times a day. I mean, uh, every time I have a podcast interview like this, I have two today like my why comes into place. And that's why I'm asking the questions from the standpoint of it may be a a five-year-old, it may be a 25-year-old, it may be someone that is not even born yet. So I need to kind of figure out the right questions and structure and tell your story to make it inspirational, make it inspiring, educational, informative, all within one hour. And I'll ask you one final question. Has your why changed over 
your lifetime. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, it, my why didn't really come into play as focused as it is right now until uh, I, I thought bigger. You know, originally it was like, oh, I'll make this for my family. I'll do this for my ecosystem. And then once I got to the point to where, okay, like that's limiting, right? Like your, 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 your descendants are, are kind of the given, but how do I then take what I'm doing for my descendants and spread it out to other people? And that's when my why got so much bigger and so much more dedication and, and inspiring because I'm not just helping myself. I'm also helping others. Wonderful. Thank yep. you. Yep. Well, I think from 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 Boston Cage to you, I think like naming you the profound boss without like there's no other name that I could even comprehend to kind of define who you are. You're, you're a profound individual. I definitely appreciate all the insights. And again, we jumped through like your life, but we also talk, jumped through some technology. And I think you did it effortlessly, effortlessly and you did it flawlessly and you did it to, in a way to where it wasn't so much tech jargon. It was comprehensible for even the layman person. So I definitely appreciate that. Well, thank you again for this opportunity. I did quite enjoy our conversation. Well, the pleasure was mine. Have a great one. You too. S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762-233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss Uncaged are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.